Isn't it time you lived life on your own terms? If not now, when? Visit abrilliantgamble.com for more information on Blair's new exciting online coaching program. Midlife doesn't have to be a crisis. It's a time to rethink who you are and what you really want from your work, your life, and yourself. Sacrificing your soul stops here. It's time to make some plans, make them happen, and live the life you deserve. With interviews, stories from her own adventures, and expert insights, here's your host, best-selling author, speaker, and coach, Blair Palmer. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of A Brilliant Gamble. I hope you are really well. Things are, as ever, so good here on the farm. Um, We are getting in fencing quotes. I think I might have mentioned this last week, but the, the numbers are starting to come in. And whilst they are big, they are manageable. So um, it looks like we are going to be set for our chickens in the new year, which is very, very exciting. Other than that, uh, work is starting to calm down for Christmas, as it may be for you, although I know also for you it may be getting really, really hectic. There's one of two things happens this time of year. It either goes really quiet or it gets really, really crazy. But I hope whatever is going on in your world, you're enjoying it, you're sucking the marrow out of it. And if you're not feeling the love for it at the moment, Stay tuned right to the end of this interview because I talk a little bit at the end of this about the Brilliant Gamble online program and how that might help you to feel differently next time we get to Christmas. But uh, that's later on in about an hour. First of all, I want to talk to you about today's interview. How much of yourself do you leave on the pavement on your way to work? At times we've all done it. It's a self-protectionism mechanism. You bring your whole self to work in an unsafe environment and that feels risky. So when you turn up in a sort of suit of armor, it does kind of make sense if your work environment is not safe, doesn't feel like you can be yourself. Sometimes we leave part of ourselves on the pavement because we don't think that that part of ourselves is what is wanted or valued or appreciated by our organization or the people we work with. Some people don't think of work as a place to bring their whole selves. They'd rather make more of a distinction between their work self and their self outside of work. I'm increasingly convinced that when we leave parts of ourselves outside, thinking we can collect them on the way out the door at the end of the day, we may discover that we've left them out there to die. When you go eight or 10 or more hours a day neglecting parts of yourself year after year, you can get to a point where you find it very difficult to access those parts of you again. Not only that, but the assumption that those parts aren't valued by our organization or that we need to hide something about ourselves in order to do our job may well be flawed. What if the bits you feel that have the least value because they're different or a bit weird (laughs) or not conforming to the culture are actually the bits that have the most value? Today's interview is with author and speaker Mike Robbins. He was on track to be a pro baseball player when an injury forced him to rethink his whole future. 
In this conversation, we talk about vulnerability, personal development, where to start looking for happiness, and how to question the stories we tell ourselves to ourselves about ourselves and the stories we tell about ourselves to other people. I learned a lot from Mike about some of these concepts, especially the value of putting yourself out there even when it feels uncomfortable in the extreme. I hope you'll enjoy it. Let's go to the interview now. Mike, so good to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's it's really, really exciting actually because I Um, I've been doing my research about you and one of the things that I love and what I want to get into with you today is bringing some of the sort of personal growth and self-development stuff that people like me have been interested in for, you know, 20 or 30 years, um, but bringing that into the corporate environment. And before we talk a bit about your story and what brought you to here, how is this stuff received in the business world because it's very touchy-feely isn't it it is you know and i've seen quite an evolution i mean i started my business almost 18 years ago and my orientation to the world is very much through the lens of personal and spiritual growth that's what got me into doing this work i didn't set out um to you know be sort of a corporate motivational speaker and trainer and coach as i've sort of become it was like i just started sharing my story and talking about my own journey and started to notice that a lot of the organizations and companies i live in the san francisco bay area and silicon valley area there were a lot of companies at the time when i first started that were interested in some of the things that i was talking about and um i so i sort of backed my way into that world if you will I only spent a couple of years working in the tech world myself, um, but started to realize that there was some interest. And I was trying at the time when I first started 18 years ago to really, how do I coordinate this and make it sound very businessy? And what's happened is the world has changed and evolved. And so, yeah, I had to learn some things about business and organizations and how it tied to some of the things that I believed to be important. But there's just so much more openness and awareness to the importance of personal growth and development, even in high-level Fortune 500 companies that are trying to, you know, make as much money as possible, they realize that people want to grow and develop. And not only do they want to grow and develop, if the organization sets up an environment where people can do that, people are going to be more successful, people are going to thrive, they're going to stay longer, they're going to be happier, healthier. I mean, there's so many benefits. It's sort of, it's a win all the way around. So these sound like companies, I mean, you mentioned Silicon Valley, that, that would naturally embrace stuff that's maybe a little bit not mainstream but i've looked at the list of some of your clients they're not all like that are they they're they're, some of them have been around for a long time quite conventional organizations yeah i mean you know there's a lot of tech companies that i work with you know my organization works with like google and you know uh aol and and ebay and adobe and these you know tech companies in in silicon valley but there's also you know wells fargo bank and charles schwab and you know, London life and New York life and, and companies in the financial world that you wouldn't necessarily even, you know, I mean, again, I'm, I'm here in the U.S., so most of the clients are U.S.-based, but working with local, state, federal governments, you know, organizations that are, that are much more conventional and traditional um, that you wouldn't necessarily think would be progressive in how they think about growth and development for individuals as well as for the culture and organization. But it's really been amazing. I remember five years ago, being at speaking at an event at Charles Schwab, which is a you know investment firm that's based here in San Francisco, 
but I'm walking down the hall towards the meeting room where I was going to speak. And there's a picture of someone in a corporate suit with their, you know, laptop next to them, but they're sitting sort of in a lotus position and with their eyes closed. And it says, you know, come to our lunchtime meditation group. And I just kind of laughed out loud, like, wow, the world is really changing and evolving because, you know, even an organization like this, I mean, Charles Schwab is actually quite progressive and open-minded for a financial and investment firm. But seeing that sign to like join the meditation group at Charles Schwab made me realize in my own arrogant way sometimes that I think, well, oh, I know about all these things and I'm very evolved. But of course, some of these organizations wouldn't necessarily be. That's not really the case. And even when I travel to the UK where you live or I travel in other places in Europe um, or even down in India and, you know, in Asia, there's a lot of openness and understanding that um, the growth and development of individuals as well as the health of teams and organizations is fundamental to thriving, especially in today's sort of crazy global environment where things are changing and moving so fast. I think everyone listening to this show um, is, a, is a fan of personal growth. Um, I wonder though how comfortable, I, I mean, like you say, a, a few years ago, you know, it would have been extraordinary to hear a CEO or someone in senior leadership position talk about their meditation practice, for instance, you know, right. whereas now it is talked about more openly. But I wonder if still there is this, um, this idea that, you know, some personal development is important because that affects our bottom line. You know, happy employees are more productive. They're more willing to go the extra mile. Um, But I wonder how many organizations and individuals recognize the, the huge, I mean, for me, they, I perceive this huge untapped potential when people yeah. are healthy, but I, but I experience most organizations or a lot of organizations as being fundamentally unhealthy. Now, are you, is that your experience too? Or are you a little bit more positive? Well, you know, what's interesting. I was just listening to a podcast this morning as I was exercising and I was listening to my friend, Jonathan Fields, who has a great podcast called Good Life Project. And he was interviewing Seth Godin. And one of the things that Seth said that really resonated with me, he said, you know, what we know to be true statistically is the world is actually getting safer and healthier exponentially all the time. However, the media narrative that we hear, and I know this is true in the US, it's probably true in the UK and other places in the world, the media narrative is that the world is becoming less safe and more unhealthy. And so there's this weird juxtaposition when in reality, I actually think the same is true about sort of the corporate world. And that's a big, you know, basket that we could put a lot of things in. And are there unhealthy environments where people work? Absolutely. But let's be honest, you and I have our own businesses. There's a lot of people listening to us who may have their own businesses. And whether you work for a big, huge Fortune 500 company, or you work for a government agency, or you have your own business where it's just you or maybe a couple of people, an unhealthy environment can exist anywhere. I've had my business for 18 years. There's times it's been, and I've been really healthy in how I run my business. And there's times I've been really unhealthy where I'm not sleeping and I'm not eating well and I'm mean to my wife and my girls who I love because I'm stressed out, I'm on a deadline for a book or whatever. And it's not that the environment where I'm sitting in my office right now which is in my home, is necessarily unhealthy or have someone berating me or yelling at me or having unreasonable expectations. It's simply that's going on in my own mind. So organizations of any size and any type are made up of individuals, right? And so I think what we have to realize is, you know, I look at this, at least this is true in America. Over the last 20 years, one of the things that's happened in corporate America is a lot of companies have invested in health and wellness, 
And they've done it for self-serving reasons, right? They realize, oh, if people are healthier and we create environments where we have healthier food and there's an opportunity for people to exercise or we give them devices to wear on their wrists so they're walking more or whatever, they do some incentive to be healthier, they'll show up at work more often, they'll be more productive, that'll be better for us. And oh, by the way, there's an added benefit that they'll be healthier in their lives. I don't think it's disputed now. I mean, again, 40 years ago, let's say, people thought that those who exercised were weird, right? Why are you exercising? Why are you running or walking or lifting weights or doing yoga? I mean, that was for strange people who just kind of a fad thing. And now, of course, we all know whether we exercise enough or not, we all know it's important and we should do it. What type of exercise we do and how often, I mean, that's debatable, but there's no dispute that exercising and being healthy in terms of how we eat and how we take care of our bodies is important. And companies have come on board to say, we need to invest in this to some degree and create an environment where that's conducive. I think the same thing is happening with things like meditation and personal growth. It's a little bit, it hasn't, it didn't happen as soon as exercise and wellness did. And it's not that every company and organization focuses on wellness, but it's not that strange. It's not that fringe. It's more mainstream. We're seeing that now with mindfulness and meditation. I think we're also seeing that in terms of personal growth. And yeah, some companies in Silicon Valley, like Google as an example, who I've partnered with for the last 10 years, is on the cutting edge of that. When I first came into Google 10 years ago to deliver a workshop on building authentic relationships, it was part of a larger curriculum that they had called the School of Personal Growth. Now that to me at the time was like, wow, there's a company, a very successful company that has a school of personal growth inside their organization. Yeah. And the classes and the workshops and seminars they were offering were incredibly popular. But now because of the success of Google as a company, they've been able to show this isn't just some warm, fuzzy, touchy, feely fringe thing that we do. This is one of the driving forces behind why our organization is so engaged and people want to work here and we produce extraordinary results. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very exciting time, I think. And you're right. I've seen those posters as well as I've been, you know, in the ladies' toilets in a pharmaceutical company. And here it says, right. you know, come along to our lunchtime session or whatever it might be, meditation or relaxation or whatever. I think I think that that is stuff that is that is starting to happen. Um, yeah. And what? But as you said before, this isn't. This was never your big dream, you know, when you were a, a school kid, this isn't what you wanted to, to do. You wanted to be in sports, right? Yeah. So I grew up here in California, not far from where I live now. And, um, you know, as a young American kid, I wanted to play baseball, right? And I was, I was good at baseball. Um, and I played all through school and I actually got drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. Um, I didn't end up signing a contract with the Yankees at that time because I went, I got an opportunity to play baseball in college at Stanford University. And if I'd signed with the Yankees, I wouldn't have been able to play at Stanford. So I go to Stanford and play there. Then I get drafted again out of Stanford by another pro baseball team here in the US, the Kansas City Royals. And I sign a pro contract. And the way that it works in baseball, you sign a contract with a major league team like the Yankees or the Royals, or there's 30 teams in the major leagues, you have to go into what's called the minor leagues. And there's a bunch of levels of the minor leagues, you got to work your way up to hopefully ultimately get to the major leagues. Unfortunately for me, I, I got hurt. I injured. I was a pitcher and I hurt my arm when I was in the minor leagues. I tore ligaments in my elbow. And after a series of surgeries on my arm, I finally was forced to retire from baseball at the age of 25. And I had started playing baseball when I was seven. So 18 of the first 25 years of my life were focused on this one activity. And as you can imagine, and I've written about this in most of my books, and I talk about this a lot, even all these years later, it was a devastating experience for me. I mean, that was my focus. That was my identity. That was, you know, I grew up 
single mom. We didn't have a lot of money. In addition to loving the game of baseball, it was sort of going to be my ticket, you know, to, to make it to be rich and famous and all the, you know, American dream stuff, things that, that many of us have wherever we may, may grow up in the world. Um, and that didn't happen. And so I was devastated by that experience. However, like many times when we go through something really painful in life, it taught me a ton. And it really, it, it was a huge blow to my ego. And I didn't really know what I was going to do or who I was without that identity. But it forced me to look more deeply within myself. And through the journey of getting injured and ultimately my career ending, that was actually part of my own sort of personal and, and spiritual awakening, if you will, because I had to start asking myself some deeper questions about, well, what is life really about? And why am I here? And even if I had made it to the major leagues and became rich and famous as an athlete, that wasn't going to guarantee me to be happy and fulfilled in my life. Um, and I realized like most people, especially growing up where I grew up and how I grew up, I'd mostly been trained on how to achieve success, but I had not been trained in any way on how to experience fulfillment or peace or happiness, you know, and I became really interested in those things uh, for myself, because I was lost and in a lot of pain, but also because, and once I started to to learn some things that had a positive impact on me, I just, I wanted to share them with other people. I mean, it's, that's just kind of my personality. You know, if I go see a great movie or I read a great book, I want to tell you, oh my gosh, you have to see this movie. It's really amazing. <laughs> or you have to read this book, or I just heard this thing, or I learned this thing, or I, I just have always sort of had, you know, a passion for telling stories and sharing things that I think are interesting and inspiring. And so, you know, that became really important to me. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people can um, identify with what you're experiencing. You know, even I've talked a bit recently on, on the show about my own midlife crisis and people know that I have done some kind of wild stuff to try to overcome to, to, to make this from a crisis into an opportunity yeah. <laughs> uh, to change things but to have that when you're 25 you know just at the point where people are are embarking on the careers that they thought they were going to have their first career let's say and it's cut short I wonder what it was it, the first thing that you discovered or the most powerful thing that you discovered that that started to help you through to come to terms with that that um, life-changing experience? Well, you know, it, it, was, it was a process, I would say. I mean, it probably, it started even earlier for me. When I was in college, my junior year in college at Stanford, um, I got miserably and suicidally depressed. And that, you know, and I come from a family, on my father's side of the family, there's a lot of mental illness. My dad suffered pretty significantly from bipolar disorder. Um, and m most of the people on my father's family all, you know, it was literally talked about growing up as, as the family curse. And my dad and my mom split up when I was three. So I wasn't raised by my father, but was influenced by him in a lot of ways and knew, or at least, you know, as a little kid, didn't really understand what this whole depression and, and mental illness thing was. It was still, I mean, this is, you know, I was born in 1974. So in the early 80s, um, when my dad is, is in the hospital, and I don't really understand what's going on, it's hard to explain to a seven-year-old, eight-year-old child, well, your dad's depressed. What does that mean? But, but when I experienced it myself, um, it scared me. It was painful. Anyone listening who's ever gone through depression knows how painful it can be. But in addition to the experience of it in the moment, there was also the fear of, oh no, this is going to be my life. 
this is going to be what I have to deal with because it's genetic and there's nothing I can do about it. And I, I got the family curse, right? Um, and so that process, though, as painful as it was, you know, I went into therapy and started to look more deeply and started to explore things about life and growth and spirituality and meet people who mentored me and taught me things. And I started reading books and being curious about stuff. So this is at the age of 21. And I was also angry because I looked at my life and I went, wait a minute, I've done well in school. I've done well in sports. I'm at this prestigious university. I'm doing, I've checked all the boxes you're supposed to check to be happy and successful in life. And how come I'm miserable? And that's where I started to realize, oh, you know what? I've never really studied or paid attention to, and no one's really ever taught me, here's how to be happy and fulfilled in life. Like, where's that class, you know? And so that got me thinking at that time, even though I was still really focused on baseball, there was this other track going on in my life where I realized I need to focus in the same way I focused on school and sports, I need to focus on my own well-being mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and, and even physically. Because even as an athlete back in the you know, early 90s, we weren't learning a lot about nutrition and health and wellness. We were simply just told to like be strong and go compete. So anyway, that, that, those things were going on at the same time. So when, I, when baseball ended, as disappointing and scary and disorienting as it was, I think at some deeper level, there was this excitement that I had like, wow, now there's a whole world open to me that I could go explore. I didn't know what the heck that was. And my ego was really attached to being an athlete and being good at what I did. But it, it opened something up for me that then I was able to dive more deeply into. Um, and anyway, it's a long answer to your simple question. But I think part of it also was going through some of what I went through as a child and with my family and seeing my father. Um, I was aware of a certain amount of pain and suffering in life at a young age that had me say, I don't want to continue to suffer in my life as I watch my, both of my parents suffer in different ways. So, you know, all of those things were, were blessings in disguise in a lot of ways. Yeah. What I'm, what I'm thinking about as you're talking about that is how, I mean, you, you said it yourself, there's, there's no class for at school that here's how to be happy. And yeah. so the, the focus on so much, of the definition of success is about the things that you will do, the achievements that you'll, uh, that you'll make in your life. Um, you know, the job titles, the, the salary, those kind of things. And we have this idea that that as a result of that, we will achieve happiness. Right. Um, and it's, and, and it's unfortunate because I think we've all fallen into that trap, right? I mean, I mean, and I, so you know, I'm a three on the Enneagram, which is the achiever, the performer. So my personality is oriented that way. I also live in the US and in California where there's so much superficiality and there's so much about what do you look like and what do you do? And, um, you know, it's just, it's kind of in the culture. I have, I have a friend, Robert, who lives in the UK and he's also, we, we talk about all kinds of things, life, and he's a psychologist and He's also a three on the Enneagram, and he said to me one day, I'm so grateful that I didn't grow up in California because that would have been a, such a trap for my ego. And I was like, I did, man. I know what you're talking about. And again, not to make excuses, you know, I also am super grateful. I feel like in a lot of ways, I won the genetic lottery to be born here and at the time that I was born. And so I, I you know, and I love where I live and all of those things. But again, I think it's important for all of us to be mindful of the environment in which we live now, especially today. And my wife and I, Michelle and I have two girls who are 12 and 10. And I just watch them. Our 12-year-old is where 
you know, she just got a smartphone and she's paying attention to the world and to pop culture and to Instagram and to all of these things. And I think those things are hard enough for me to manage as an almost 45 year old man who's been doing some of my own personal and spiritual work for the last 20 or 25 years. And here are my two girls who are pretty aware and smart, sweet, kind, loving beings, but like how to navigate the world in which we live where so much of the focus is on appearance and outcome and achievement. And so I think part of our job, not just as parents, but as humans is to remind ourselves all the time that it's not just about those things. Because we've all had experiences where we've achieved something in life and we thought that thing, that relationship, that job, that car, money, goal, degree, whatever, was going to then make me happy. And it's so sad when it doesn't. And then we don't learn, right? We think, okay, that wasn't the right goal. There needs to be another goal, a bigger goal. But it's, it's from that paradigm, it's insatiable. Yeah, I, I think you get to a certain point in your life where the evidence is so clear that the things that you thought were going to bring you happiness or a sense of fulfillment or peace of mind or whatever it was that you were seeking, the evidence is all there that it was it was never about those things. There are moments, of course, you know, you get yeah. the job you were going for or you're recognized by your colleagues or you win the contract for the, the big piece. There's definitely those moments of high. But actually to yes. sustain a real sense that your life is meaningful, that you feel good about yourself, um, to, to feel that sense of peace and I'm living the life that I was supposed to live. It doesn't, once you're in your 40s and certainly once you're in your 50s, it, the, the, if you ignore the evidence, then it's a kind of right. madness to still keep seeking from the same place. It, it's, it's true. You know, my, my same friend, Robert, who I was talking about, who lives in the UK, likes to say, you know, he's a psychologist and he likes to say, by the time you get to 30 years old, most of us have enough reasons to be miserable for the rest of our lives, right? Like we've experienced enough pain or suffering or challenge. I mean, every now and again, there's someone who's completely blessed and has no, but so he says, so that means that by the time we reach 30, what we have to learn is how to choose to be happy, how to choose to be mindful of our thoughts, be mindful of what we focus on and the stories that we're telling ourselves. Because again, I'm sure you, just like me, just like just about everybody listening, we could tell a story about our lives that's tragic and sad and terrible and nothing, you know, or we could also tell a very different story. And again, what do we choose to focus on? You know, and even as you're talking about midlife and aging, and as I go through my own journey of aging, what's interesting about it too is that, you know, looking back, do you ever do this where you look back at a photograph of yourself from five years ago or 10 years ago or whenever it was? And even just on the, on the basic sort of superficial level of going, gosh, you know, I remember thinking that I looked old or I was aging at that time. And you look back and go, God, I looked great. And you realize, but I didn't feel that at that point, just on that level. Um, and I think sometimes, even I remember, you know, we went through about 10 years ago, and I wrote about this in one of my books, we went through a really difficult financial time. Um, you know, when, when the, the global economy tanked and the housing market here in the US and most places in the world was down. I mean, we were underwater in our house and we were deeply in debt and we just had two babies and we were really scared. Michelle and I were really scared. And what's funny is when I think about that time, when I talk about it and remember it, I remember being really scared and I remember it being really hard. And then we were just looking at some old videos from, from that time when the girls were really little and we had a toddler and a baby and, you know, and it's funny because I was watching the videos and thinking, you know what? we actually looked pretty happy. We were having fun and we were laughing and it, you know what I mean? So again, it's just, 
what's our story about what's happening both in the past and in the present? And part of the work that I do when I go in to talk to people inside of organizations is what you and I are talking about, is this mindset and this approach. Again, what are we saying to ourselves about ourselves? What are we saying to each other? What's the focus? You know, I mean, economically, right now, for the most part, a lot of the companies that I work with, things are going well. Not every company is thriving, but like the stock market's been pretty good, even though it's relatively flat this year. The, you know, the, the job market here in the US, I know for sure the unemployment rate's as low as it's been. Like most of the companies that I'm working with are doing well. Some are thriving incredibly, but I try to remind without being, you know, pessimistic, like remember what it was like 10 years ago? everybody was freaked out and companies were laying people off and people were afraid about their futures and their investments and all this stuff. And I said, so part of it is for us to have some perspective because these things go in cycles and inevitably in the next few years, probably things are going to change one way or the other. And can we have some perspective to appreciate things while they're going well? And then when they go, when they're more challenging, can we also appreciate ourselves and the process instead of being so attached to the outcome? You know, one of the things that I love that Tony Robbins says that I think is so true is that there's a science of achievement. We can learn how to achieve individually, collectively, and that's important to learn, to be effective, successful, whatever that means in life. However, there's an art to fulfillment, and that's something that we really have to learn and cultivate. And one of the things he says, and I love this quote, is that success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. And that's a trap I, I find myself falling into from time to time. So focused, even at this point in my life, even with all my awareness, so focused on the outcome, the achievement. I have to be mindful again, three on the Enneagram, really focused on outcome and achievement and performance. If I'm just going for the outcome and not focused on the fulfillment in the process, it actually not only doesn't feel as good and isn't as enjoyable, I've learned over time, I'm often less effective and successful when I do that. Yeah. For sure. It's something we've talked about on this show before about being so attached to the outcome that you, you give off this, this vibe, this almost like a bad smell. Right. You don't even know you're doing it. And no one else really knows what it is that they're smelling, but they're smelling some kind of desperation, selfishness. Um, you know, you're not there for your clients or for others. You're there purely for your own ends. And there's a, there's a definite whiff to it. <laughs> Completely. And it's, it's challenging. It, it, I mean, for people and people listening, maybe who have their own businesses or people who are coaches or people, you know, I mean, in the world that you and I operate in, one of the things that I've learned about this over the years, starting my own business at the age of 26, when I didn't know anything and didn't know what I was doing, you know, to now, you know, 18 plus years later, when I meet people who have their own businesses, particularly these types of businesses, coaching businesses, um, and I love talking shop. I love talking about this kind of work. Um, but I can tell probably within 30 seconds or a minute if they really have much business going on or not. And I don't mean that from an arrogant judgmental place, but it sort of takes one to know one. Like I hear them, oh, well, this, I got this and this, this, and you can sort of feel the energy of it. And it's like, what I want to say as respectfully and as kindly as I can, is like, you don't have to perform for me. You can actually tell me the truth about what's going on. Like, I love that someone coached you on your elevator pitch and I love that you have your whole, you know, unique positioning statement, all that great stuff that you learn from sort of marketing professionals, which is wonderful. But at the end of the day, you know, I, my work is a lot about authenticity, but it's also, can we be authentic and be real with ourselves? I see this even in corporations with, 
younger, less experienced employees trying to compensate for their youth and inexperience when my response is like, look, just be where you are. Embrace that. In fact, there's something really important about being young and open-minded in your career. You could look at it negatively like, oh, I'm naive or I'm inexperienced or people aren't going to take me seriously. Or you could look at it like, hey, I have a fresh perspective. And with people who have our own businesses, one of the things that when you're starting your business, there's a lot of fear and a lot of doubt and a lot of insecurity, but there's also a lot of passion and energy that you can't recreate in some ways later on. You know, 18 years into this, I love my work at an even deeper level than I did when I started, but I have to mind my own cynicism about it because I've been doing this for a while and I've been around the block and I, I know how the publishing world works. I know how the speaking world works. I know how the coaching world, you know, it's like, and I got to catch myself in my own sort of, oh, also my own arrogance of things. I know things that maybe I don't. So can I bring a beginner's mind to something new, bring that newness, that freshness, that excitement, even when I've been doing it? You know, I'm just about to start working on my fifth book, which I'm excited about. I'm a little nervous about as I always am in this stage, like, oh, what did I say yes to? Gosh, I have to write another book. Like, really? Because it's hard and, and daunting. But also there's a part of me that can get super excited at one moment, but also somewhat cynical because I've gone down the path before. So wherever we are on the journey, if we can come back to a sense of being real about where we are, not only is it liberating to us, it actually connects us more deeply to the people around us which gives us more access to support and connection. So let's get into that then. This, um, the piece around vulnerability and authenticity. Um, and, you know, this idea of vulnerability has been around for a little while. So mm -hmm. it's become almost a little cliched, um, right. uh, just because it, it's become the kind of go-to term. But one of the things I like about it um, is, is that when you're... It's almost the ultimate, not quite, but it's almost the ultimate mindset to choose or behavior yeah. if you have to choose because you can't bring any ego to it. So, you know, there are yeah. lots of things, you, you, lots of emotions that you could bring or, or, or mindsets you could bring. You know, the, the beginner's mind, I really like that. Maybe we might come back to that. Um, you know, the, the, the coach's mind or um, all sorts of different mindsets you could bring, but vulnerability, you just, there's absolutely no room for it ego it's all humility isn't it what, what is what is important to you about this idea of being vulnerable well you know i think i got in touch with vulnerability um as an athlete because you know playing baseball and i know i know baseball is not a huge sport in the uk um but one of the things about any sport, you know, whether it's football or it's baseball or it's any, you know, and anybody who's ever done anything, and it doesn't even have to be about sports. It could also be anytime we put ourselves out in the arena, so to speak, where, you know, doing the work that you do, that I do, even having a podcast like this, where we could be judged. But the thing about sports, even more so, I find, I mean, you know, I've been speaking and writing for the last 18 years and it can be vulnerable. But the thing like in this, in the sport of baseball, whether people listening are familiar with baseball or not, I was... I played, the position that I played was a pitcher. And the way it works is if you do poorly as a pitcher, they literally stop the game and take you out of the game in the middle of the game and replace you with somebody else. Um, I also played some basketball. I wasn't as good at basketball. But similarly, the coach will, you know, the, the buzzer will sound and they'll replace you in the game. Sometimes it's because you get tired, but sometimes it's because you suck and you did something bad. So like, but, but there was this sense of, and I didn't use the word vulnerable or vulnerability as an athlete, but I realized that, 
one of the things I both loved and hated about being an athlete was the vulnerable nature of it. I would, I love the game and I was pretty attached to the outcome. I wanted to do well. And in a sport like baseball, even when you're really good at it, there's a ton of failure. So I learned how to fail. I learned how to fail publicly and I did not like it. I didn't enjoy it, but it did give me a certain amount of courage in life that I didn't even realize until later when I unpacked it. Now, look, not everybody listening played sports at any level. So this isn't about sports or not sports, but we've all done things in life where we put ourselves out there. And in most cases, even if we're relatively quote unquote successful, we've also failed. Most of the really successful people that we admire have failed enormously. And it's one of the things we admire about them is that they've been able to figure out how to get back up and do it again, um, right? You think, I mean, I think sometimes when I watch someone, you know, and I, I've never been very artistically inclined, like I don't sing, I don't paint, I don't, you know, act, and, but I love the arts. And when I love to go see a, a musical or see a, a musician or a band perform, and I think to myself, wow, like I can't do that. So I'm in awe of that skill. But there's also something that I really admire about the willingness to create something and put it out there that could be judged and liked or disliked but also knowing that, you know, even when you're a really skilled musician, just like in sports, you could make a mistake, you could sing off key, you could, right? Um, so again, to me, those things, vulnerability is intricately linked with courage. There's really no courage without vulnerability. And I love the definition that Dr. Brene Brown uses for vulnerability. I love, she says, vulnerability is risk, emotional exposure, and uncertainty. And, and when I think about this, like, I love to ask this question. Can you think of anything meaningful or important you've ever accomplished or experienced in your life, personally or professionally, that did not require risk, emotional exposure, or uncertainty? If it matters to us, right? If a relationship matters, um, if we're, you know, if we're in a, if we've ever been in a committed love relationship of any kind, married or not, if we have children, oh my goodness, talk about vulnerability. If we have ever created something and put it out in the world and wanted people to appreciate it and enjoy it and hope that it was positively received, which means all of us, right? <laughs> have we ever, anything that we do that matters is gonna require those things. So it's not an issue of um, is vulnerability good or bad necessarily. It's really how much capacity do we have to embrace being vulnerable? Because the more capacity we have to embrace being vulnerable, the more courage we have and the more courage we have, the more likely we are to experience and accomplish the things we really want to experience and accomplish. I really like the way that you're describing vulnerability because I had been assuming, I think, that vulnerability was about um, maybe not feeling great about something and then speaking it. And, and, and that may be a form of vulnerability. But it what is. you're talking about is broader and I think maybe something that more people can can identify with because it's about it's about putting yourself out into the world and when you do that the biggest risk it seems to me from the way you're describing it the biggest risk you take is the judgment of others and how that might then affect you and your judgments of yourself absolutely look there's a part of vulnerability that is disclosure like you're talking about so maybe you know it's feeling insecure feeling um uncomfortable and and admitting it that's that is a part of it that's not all of it though and you could look and in the world we live in now with all these podcasts which are great like you and i are on right here with the social media world and blogs and like people are just sort of like sharing their story and this happened to me and this happened to me and this and that and that is or can be quite vulnerable 
right? I mean, I mean, think about the Me Too movement. It's about people, mostly women, but people coming forward and saying, this happened to me. This really painful, terrible thing happened to me. I'm going to share my story. And other people saying, wow, Me Too. This happened to Me Too. You're not the only one. And so there is an element of that's part of vulnerability is disclosure, sharing the things, bringing the secrets out of the shadows and into the light, right? Carl Jung said, we're only as sick as our secrets. However, sometimes disclosure isn't actually vulnerability. It's, I want attention. It's, listen to me, I'll tell you, oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you how bad it is for me. And we're actually not really being vulnerable. We're just sharing gory details of our lives. Now, I'm not saying, like, I'm someone who shares a lot and probably overshares, <laughs> you know. That said, though, one of the things that I've, I've been, Brene Brown just wrote a new book called Dare to Lead. And one of the things she's been saying that I totally agree with, she says, you can be vulnerable without disclosing much of anything. So there are people who are really private who say, I'm not going to talk to you about my family and my background and, you know, my sex life or whatever. I'm gonna, but I can be vulnerable in the way that I show up and lead by, you know, admitting the truth of how I'm feeling in the moment about by taking risks or trying something new about giving feedback, right? Think about feedback. This is something that comes up a lot in my work, both the giving and the receiving of feedback. If we're managing people or leading people, coaching people, part of what, you know, you know, this is a coach. I learned years ago in my coach training, they said, most of your coaching clients will not fire you for being too tough on them. They'll fire you for being too weak, too wimpy, unwilling to really give them that feedback. And I realized part of my challenge as a coach in the early years was I was too scared to do that. I would say, oh, I'm afraid they'll get upset. I'm afraid they'll fire me. I'm afraid because I need the money because I got to pay the rent. And that was true. But the real deeper truth was like, if I really tell that person what I think and what I see, it might upset them. They might get defensive. They might yell at me. They might think I'm a jerk. And yeah, maybe they'll fire me. But I was more afraid that it would go bad and it would be uncomfortable emotionally. So therefore, I would play it safe and I wouldn't really give them the feedback that they were asking for, that they were actually paying me for. And I see this in the business world all the time. We think that it's vulnerable to receive when the boss says, okay, here are your areas of development. Yeah, that is vulnerable to receive. Guess what? That's also vulnerable to give. And most leaders that I work with aren't very good at giving feedback because they sugarcoat it. They withhold it. They don't really tell the truth because you have to step into that vulnerable place of, you know what? I'm going to say something here that I think is really important for you to hear. And I don't know exactly how to say it without you getting upset. So therefore, I'm either not going to say it or I'm going to say it in a really mean, weird way because I'm going to say, well, I'm the boss and that's my job. But either way, it's not effective. You know, so again, vulnerability is about embracing the discomfort of stepping out of our comfort zone, whatever that may be, taking a risk, disclosing something, admitting a vulnerability, I mean, a, a, an insecurity, maybe saying something we want to say, maybe asking for something that we really want. All of those things are about vulnerability. And most of us, quite frankly, myself included, aren't very good at being vulnerable because the discomfort takes over and we acquiesce to the discomfort. Wow. Okay. So this is so useful because I get a lot of people asking about procrastination and yes. avoidance, you know, so um, I'd rather do, someone might say, I, I'd rather do anything that, than sit down and write that proposal. So I'll end up, you know, making myself a very fancy lunch or, you yes. know, doing the laundry or whatever, or uh, I'll, I'll really do anything to avoid giving feedback to my team. So right. you know, I'll tell them they did great when they didn't or, or whatever it might be. We, we, we are so, um, 
we get really beat ourselves up for avoiding conflict, for procrastinating, for kind of finding workarounds for things that are uncomfortable to us. Yes. But I wonder if, from what you're saying, in the end, the thing that we're trying to avoid most of all is that sense of vulnerability. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's it's true for me. I mean, I think about this. I mentioned earlier, you know, I just, I just signed a deal with my publisher to write another book. And the, the thought of starting it is like, oh, I have to jump in the deep end of the pool and it's going to be cold and I don't know if I'm going to make it to the other side. I mean, at some level, I've done it before, so I know I'll get there. But it's the, the vulnerability of the starting of the project that's really hard. Even just sitting here today having this conversation with you, there's an email I need to write that we're going to send out to our list tomorrow that like I'm putting off because oh, I don't know exactly what to say and I'm going to start it and it's probably going to suck at first and I hate that feeling. and blah, blah, blah. So it's easier just to write like I'll just react to what's coming in. It's easier for me to respond to emails than it is again to write a proposal or write a blog post or create something. Um, and, and again, just knowing that, look, part of that is being human. Part of that is the, the process of being a creator of anything. And there are certain things that we're going to be more excited to do and other things we're going to be less excited to do. I mean, one of the most classic time management techniques that works every time that I still fail at all the time is like do the hardest, scariest thing first, then everything else will be easier after that. And that's so true, but I often do the opposite. I start doing the easy things and think, oh, I'll get some momentum going and then I'll be ready to do that hard thing when in reality it's like, no, I'm actually not. And then I fill my whole day with the easy stuff and the hard stuff. I go, well, I'll do that tomorrow. And that's what procrastination is about. And so it's not about beating ourselves up for procrastinating, but just to realize if we can lean into what is it that I'm really afraid of? What am I procrastinating? It's not the proposal. It's not the article. It's not the thing. It's the feeling of, oh, this might not go well, or people might not like this, or I might hear no, so therefore, I don't want to put it out there. You know, I had a huge breakthrough. So I've written four books. I was in the middle of writing my third book, which came out back in 2014. It's called Nothing Changes Until You Do. And I had written my first two books, uh, Focus on the Good Stuff and Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Already Taken, came out in 07 and 09, back to back. And I was proud of both of those books, but after writing two books and having, we had two babies and I wrote two books in the span of about three and a half years. And that was right at that time. We went through that really difficult financial time. By the end of 2009, I was exhausted. We were broken in debt. We had two young children and I was like, okay, this is not working. And by the way, I hate writing books. I'm never doing that again. And there were a lot of reasons for that, but I had a story that it's really hard and I'm not very good at it and I don't want to do it again and all that. So anyway, fast forward to 2013. I'm now working on my third book. I have a new publisher. I have a new editor and I've decided, I don't know exactly how this book's going to turn out. I didn't even know exactly what it was going to be about totally as I was writing it. But I said, I want to have a more pleasurable experience writing this book. And it was about halfway through. It was going much easier. I wrote it in more short essay format. I really liked it. I really liked my editor, Melanie, who I was working with. And I'm like, why is this easier? Why is this easier? And then I had, I had a basic realization. I realized, oh, writing a book is actually not that hard at all. The hard part is dealing with myself. That's the hard part. It's all of that noise in my head. It's all of that whining and complaining and criticizing and you're not any good and nobody cares and you're stupid and you suck and that gremlin's voice in my head. That's the hard part. The writing the book, at least for me, is really easy. It's just sorting myself out and not getting stuck in all those holes that I go down where I think I'm no good. And again, I don't know exactly what other people's experience of writing or doing anything is like, but as I started to talk more about that, almost everyone I talked to was like, oh yeah, again, it was that sort of me too. I can relate to that. 
that's why I procrastinate. That's why I don't fill in the blank. It's not just about writing. It's about whatever we put off. Because again, not only are we afraid of what the reaction might be or the outcome, it's that we have to go into that cave of our own mind and all of the places and all of the traps and all of the stories that we run about why we're not good enough and we're not smart enough and we're not attractive enough or we're not successful enough, or whatever that is. And so that book ironically ended up being about self-compassion. So I wrote about what I was experiencing as I was writing because I realized that's really to me at that time, and it's still true now, what I want to delve more deeply into. Can I be more kind and compassionate to myself? So even back to the question about vulnerability, it's easier for us to embrace vulnerability when we have some compassion for ourselves. Yes, this is hard. Yes, this is uncomfortable. Yes, I'm procrastinating. Can I be kind to myself in that process? And maybe, you know what, for today, I'm not going to do that thing. It's too scary right now, or I'm too upset, or I'm too scared, or I'm too stuck in some weird place of insecurity. So I'm going to do something else, be kind to myself, and then come back to this thing later or tomorrow or next week, or at least go talk to someone about it and say, not whine about the thing, but take some ownership for like, I'm having a really hard time with this. Then we can actually have some freedom and take some ownership for whatever's going on. When we blame it on the circumstance or the project or the mean boss or the unrealistic expectation or deadline that we have, then it's not our fault. It's like, hey, it's your fault. You're stressing me out. That deadline or that project, it's like, no, I get stressed in relation to this thing right now. I need to figure out a way to relate to myself differently and then figure out how I can do this thing if I really want to do it. One of the things that, um, that I hear sometimes is that, well, you know, it doesn't have to always be my fault. You know, if I'm struggling <laughs> with something in my, in my life, can it not sometimes be someone else's fault? But I, I really like the, the sort of this, this be kind to yourself piece. Yeah. And, and somehow, and maybe not in the moment, you know, we live in such a, a, a sort of push, force, you know, make yourself, sorry, make <laughs> yourself do stuff, uh, right. kind of culture that, we think to ourselves that I can't afford to wait till tomorrow until maybe I'm loving myself a little more. I'm just going to have to do it today despite all the voices in my head. But yeah. I, this idea that actually you could just say, you know what, I'm not in the right frame of mind. I'm not avoiding it. This is not procrastination, but I'm going to prioritize getting in the right frame of mind to be kind to myself. And from that place, I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing that I've been avoiding. Absolutely. Look, I mean, I think there's, there's a paradox here that you're speaking to that I think is important. On the one hand, I'm saying let's be kind and compassionate to ourselves. If you need to take a break, take a break. If you need to wait till tomorrow or next week or next month, if you can. But there are times in life where, you know what, the circumstances are such that like, it doesn't matter. You can't wait. Do you know what I mean? I think about being a parent. It's like the baby's crying. You need to go take care of the baby. Um, even if you don't feel like it, even if you're exhausted and it's the middle of the night and you don't want to, you'd figure out a way to suck it up and do it. I, I'm grateful for my training as an athlete because there were times that I did not feel like going out and competing. I wasn't in the right frame of mind. And I didn't feel like it. And I was tired and I was, you know, my mind was all over the place or my arm hurt or whatever. And you know what? Get out there and play. And that actually was a beneficial skill for me to start to learn and develop as a, as a young kid and then as a young man, and I've, I've taken that into my life because there are times, again, what I do for a living 
you know, I give about 90 presentations a year. So I'm doing keynotes and seminars. I'm speaking all the time. I love speaking. It's one of my favorite. I mean, talking to you on this podcast, I love doing as well, but I love getting up and speak in front of an audience. It also happens to be the way that I make money for the most part. It's like, it's my business. Among most of what I do, I am a speaker. I'm a professional speaker. There are times when, you know, my flight's delayed or I'm in a different time zone or I wake up in the middle of the night or I don't get any sleep and I don't feel like it. And, you know, but like, it doesn't matter. The event is happening. I'm scheduled to speak at 9 a.m. Like, get your butt up on stage. And the irony is, you know, I'm there to basically motivate people. And I will sometimes call Michelle, my wife, and be like, okay, I'm like the depressed motivational speaker today. Like, I don't know how to do this. But, but I've learned, again, authentically, how do I dig down deep and find some inspiration within myself for what is it can, that I can share with this group of people in an authentic way that I think might move and inspire them. But at the same time, honoring the fact that, you know what, right now, Michelle and I are in a big fight or the girls are really upset or things are super stressful or I'm behind on this deadline and I don't feel like it or I haven't exercised in three days and I didn't eat really well. It's, you know, all of that's true and I still have to figure out a way to show up and do my job. You know what I mean? So I think both things can be true at the same time. The book that I wrote, wrote most recently is called Bring Your Whole Self to Work. That means sometimes your whole self is grieving. Sometimes your whole self is super excited. Sometimes your whole self is not interested or engaged in what you're doing at all and all of those things can be true. And we can still show up and do our work in whatever that means. You know, and some days we're going to feel like it and be super inspired and great. And sometimes, you know, if we're creating something, the muse will show up and it will flow really easily. And sometimes it's like we just have to show up and punch the clock and put in the time and hope something will emerge from that. You know what I mean? And like that, I don't know any other way to say it. It's like it ebbs and flows just kind of like life does. You know, sometimes my wife and I are in a really great place and we're totally connected and in love and it's beautiful and wonderful. And sometimes we're on each other's nerves and we're looking at each other like, I love you, but you're bugging me right now. And like, we still love each other anyway. And we're not going anywhere, but we made a commitment to one another and to this marriage and to this family. And I feel like the same is true with our work and our life. You know, not that we never make choices and decisions that are different, but you know, we can commit, and by the act of committing, something happens, even and especially when we don't feel like it. That's why, by the way, back to my thing about my book, one of the things I know about myself is if I didn't make the commitment, I would never do it. So I put my butt on the line and say, I will do it. It's due by this time, and I will sort myself out, even if there might be some painful moments in the process, to get it done because I'll honor my word and my commitment. There's that whole you know, old saying of like, throw your hat over the wall. Because if you throw your hat over the wall, you're going to have to figure out how to get over the wall to go get your hat unless you say, you know what, I'm just going to go get another hat. But like, if I really like that hat and I throw it over the wall, I'm going to have to climb my butt up over the wall and get the damn hat, even if I'm uncomfortable. And that's one of the ways I've learned to move through my own procrastination is make big commitments that put my butt on the line that force me to do it because otherwise I won't do it. Yeah, this is so similar to me. Um, and this is, I think if you are a certain type of personality, as, as you've described, and as I think, well, I certainly am, and a lot of people are that, that have this challenge. I mean, if you're more of a laid back kind of person, this isn't so much of a challenge. But, but if, you, if you are a kind of type A, achievement orientated person, a hard work person, then one of the things that works is to, is to paint yourself into a corner, you know? Yeah. And, and then just make yourself do the thing. And, and the, 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 the subtle difference, I think, between what you're saying and this kind of force and push uh, mentality is that I wonder if in those moments you're almost 
you're so aware of what's that you're not in the right frame of mind, for instance, that right. actually that you might even do your best work. I mean, I know for myself when, when we uh, moved into this house here, I mean, things were really in disarray for the first two or three weeks. We've only here, been here about five weeks, uh, but the first two or three weeks, wow. really mad, I probably did some of my best coaching because I was, I was not full of myself. I was feeling pretty humble about my skills as a motivator and as a guru. And yes. that probably meant that I was less egotistical and yeah. more present. So uh, these moments where you're feeling less than 100% might make you at your best. Absolutely. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, you mentioned it at the beginning of the conversation, but I love the saying, like, don't waste a good crisis. If we happen to be in a situation where things are chaotic and it's not ideal, you just moved, you just went through a, you know, a divorce, you just, something bad just happened, something weird, you know, look, those things, we have to honor that. And at the same time, sometimes through the chaos and through the pain or through the challenge, one of the benefits is something deeper and more real emerges because our ego gets blown out to some degree and we have to kind of get down to the basics. Um, you know, and I have found there are times, again, I will show up for an event or to work with a group and I'm not feeling 100%. I'm tired, I'm cranky, I don't really want to be there. And somehow or another in my process of getting present to show up, something more real emerges from me. Sometimes when I have all my energy and I'm super fired up, I notice I can get more into performance mode and I'm kind of doing my shtick, which is fine and people like it and they're like, hey, that's great. But it may not be as real and it may not be as impactful. That goes back even to vulnerability that the world we live in now, I think what's abundantly clear is people are not looking for perfection. They're looking for authenticity. And if what we can deliver is something authentic and valuable, people will want it. And that's true, again, when you think about how you market yourself and how you promote your work and your business and all the things that we do is like come from a place of authenticity and realness and connect with an authentic place in other people. That's valuable. The polished, perfect, hey, I've got it all together thing doesn't usually resonate because it's just not true. Mike, th thank you so much. There's so much food for thought here. And I, I also highly recommend that people go and check out your website. You, the the books are great, and I think you know each one seems to focus on a slightly different aspect of this self-awareness of of being as much yourself as you can and using that as your secret weapon. So I I highly recommend that that people head on over there. But thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, there was so much to take away from that for me. It's rethinking the concept of vulnerability, not just as letting it all hang out, but as being about putting yourself into situations that feel risky for you, but doing it anyway. You can find out more about Mike at his website, mikerobbins.com, mike-robbins.com. I'll put the link to that and also all of his social media links in the show notes. And if you have listened to that and you've been thinking to yourself, wow, I want to be more myself. I want to be more authentic. I don't feel like I can do that in the work that I have currently on the organization that I work in currently. Then you might consider taking a brilliant gamble online, the program. If you haven't considered taking it, whatever your circumstances, but you feel like you want to shake something up in your life, then go and check it out now. Many of us get to a point in our lives when we ask, is this it? 
We may have big, bold ideas and want to shake things up, but we don't know how to get started or, or how to keep going when the inevitable obstacles get in the way. But do you want to be sitting here in 12 months time thinking, I'm still in the same job, I'm still tolerating that same commute, I'm still feeling like my life is not my own, I'm still feeling like I'm not fully living. Well, believe me, I have been there and you do not want to. (laughs) You do not want to be in the same place if you're feeling like that in 12 months time. A Brilliant Gamble Online is designed specifically to help you navigate the obstacles that seem to be in the way of all of that, even the ones that seem insurmountable at the moment. It's all the tools I used to enable us to take our big trip. I really did not believe that it was possible for someone like me to go on a trip like that, but we did. It's all the tools I used to do that, and more recently to find our perfect lifestyle here in the countryside, for me to cut my working hours right, right back and have more freedom, more of a sense of joy and more of a sense of purpose. And the feedback that I've been getting, I've been talking to some people who've recently completed the program, getting some some feedback from them, and the feedback from those people has been amazing. If you want to read some of what they have to say, just go to the website that's on the website too. We're going to be making some little films of them as well, make it a bit easier for you to see what you might get from the program. But their quotes are already on the website. Go and check it out. Just go to abrilliantgamble.com and click on the classes and coaching tab. And uh, I really think you need to ask yourself the question, what are you waiting for? There's no better time than this to start making a change in your life. I will be back next week, of course, and please stay in touch. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Check out our Facebook group. And uh, of course, go over to the website and learn more about the program. See if it's for you. It may very well be. With information about all of that, here is the lovely Ivy Palmer. podcast on iTunes as it helps people find us and take a brilliant gamble of